Hello and welcome to the menu Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. This week, Brazilian top chef Alberto Landgraf on his plans to open his first restaurant overseas and how his German-Japanese heritage has shaped his cooking. A lot of chefs have that connection with childhood. I used to cook with my grandma, used to cook with my mom. But no, when I started cooking here, I had never fried an egg in my life. We are also in Kuala Lumpur to meet one of the city's best-known international chefs, Christian Ricomio. I mean, fine dining can be quite tedious sometimes. So to to go back into, say, Alta Cafe and just make some omelettes or scrambled eggs on toast is, is quite refreshing and keeps us very fresh. All that ahead here on the menu on Monocle Radio. First today we venture to Austria to attend a special summit dedicated to the country's most promising red grape varietal, Blau Frankish. The event brought together wine critics, sommeliers and producers to taste vintages of this variety, which is relatively unknown outside of Austria. We dispatched Monocle correspondent Ivan Cavallio to the summit. When wine in Austria come up in conversation, the white wine grape, Gruner Bettliner, enjoys great name recognition. For red grape varieties, however, it is harder. But one varietal has made progress, Blaufränkisch. Already popular in the Austrian market, Blaufränkisch wines are now getting the attention of sommeliers abroad. So much, in fact, that recently Austrian producers met in the alpine resort town of Lech for a Blaufränkisch summit to let wine critics learn more about its potential. Chris York is CEO of the Austrian Wine Marketing Board. So what's really interesting about Austrian wine is, uh, of course, Grüner Vettliner is the variety that people know us by. But the very interesting thing is, is that actually a lot of other varieties coming through, and in red wine particularly, it's Blaufränkisch. Um, so it's uh, maybe a bit difficult to pronounce, uh, but it's actually uh, some really great different styles You get a really good quality wine um, that has good ageability um, and a freshness and lightness and style, which I think is really hitting what people are looking for at the moment. And it is an indigenous grape variety, and I think that's important as well. You know, you, it's very few places in the world where this is grown. The ancestral home of Blaufrankisch is in the east of Austria, in Burgenland, an area part of Hungary until the end of World War I. Before its recent boom, producers of the grape known for its fine tannins and spicy notes, had focused on making traditional-style reds, according to Willi Belaniuk, an Austrian wine journalist and educator. Yeah, the Blaufränkisch is divided into a historical style and a modern style. The historical style of Blaufränkisch was initiated in the 80s when people were focused on Bordeaux, trying to put a lot of oak into the wines, try to extract The wines like Bordeaux tried to balance the wine with a little bit too much oak of Cigar Moreau, which make a certain flavor similar in every wine. The new generation is looking for working out the character of the place the wine is grown. This means this crew aspect in showing Blaufränkisch, different soil types, different 
elegant interpretation is the new direction of the next generation. Spearheading this new interpretation of Blaufränkisch is Roland Welig, winemaker at Moritz. Welig poured me his vintages, including some made from very old vines. I wanted to prove at least um, if this variety is capable to transmit or to transfer character of the substance of the soil where it's grown into the bottle. Because this was always a very important uh, sign for a great variety, being able, showing terroir. So I started in 2001 in a place called Lutzmersburg, which which was the village... um, where people used to say this was the the best red wine in the whole region. Uh, it was famous, uh, but it lost a little bit track over the over the decades, and uh, and this is the reason why we found there very very old wines. And I was I considered old wines as a something like a treasure, you know, because deeply rooted into the soil, being able to transmit a lot of information from the soil. So we found uh, wines there, they were 80, 90, 100, 110 years, and this is something you can't plant. You you have to get it or buy it, purchase it, and be, to, be, to be able to work with it. So in 2001, Lutzmersburg, and in 2002, we started in another place called Neckenmarkt, about 15 kilometers north of that, different terroir, in order to prove that idea uh, of the variety. And the result was smashing. I mean, these were total two totally different wines. So the expression um, of the place uh, transmitted by the, by the variety was exactly that what I expected from the very beginning on. Yeah, I, I would, this Blaufrankisch, this variety is one of the very, very old varieties of a place which was once um, one of the greatest wine places in the world. We're talking about the eastern end of the Alps within the Capetian mountain in the Pannonian plains. And Blaufrankisch was the red variety. It's it's a great heritage, which has been a little bit lost because of, uh, you know, politics. Iron Curtain, two world wars, uh, made the culture collapse. But now we've got the chance to bring it back to the minds and palates of the people. Velik is also impressed at the wine's potential for food pairings. Blaufrankisch is a variety which is very fresh, has a good tannin structure. It's so inviting. So everything, it's such a versatile uh, food match with uh, with this variety. So you can go from a sushi with toro, uh, with a bit of wasabi, up to some Thai food and to some classic braised meat, some venison, uh, deer. That's that's perfect match. Another promising producer at the summit was Wachter Wieseler, fifth-generation winemaker, Christoph Wachter. Uh, Blaufränkisch itself is a variety with great freshness, fine tannins, lots of electricity in it, and uh, a pure freshness. Uh, we strive for elegance, we want drinkability. If I have to compare Blaufränkisch, I would put it somewhere in between a delicate Nebbiolo, so not that much tannins. Uh, as a Nebbiolo, but still uh, really nice, good tannins, somewhere uh, close to Cabernet Franc, so uh, the spiciness. Roland Wielek and Christoph Wachter are making fresher, brighter red wines with less of an oak imprint that communicate a sense of place in the glass. And drinkers are responding. It's safe to say there's a Blaufrankish renaissance underway. For Monocle, in Austria, I'm Ivan Carvalho.
Thanks to Ivan for his report. You are with Monocle Radio. London is enjoying a boom in Brazilian cooking. A number of Brazilian top chefs have opened restaurants in the capital, bringing with them the type of cuisine that has so far been practically absent in the UK. The latest example of this is Alberto Landcraft, who is famed for his Rio de Janeiro restaurant Oteki. He will be opening his new place Bossa in London soon. It will also be his first restaurant outside of Brazil. I met Alberto Alberto at Midori House to talk about his plans and what his cooking is all about. Let's have a listen. Yes, I started cooking here uh, 23 years ago, basically. And uh, the funny thing is that uh, when I started, a lot of chefs have that uh, connection with childhood. I used to cook with my grandma, I used to cook with my mom, I used to cook with my with my, my grandparents, something like that. I used to go to restaurants with my parents uh, and this... But uh, no, I was in a hundred percent into sports. So when I started cooking here, I had never fried an egg in my life. The first time I've ever touched a pan, a frying pan, a stove was here in London. I presume you learned quite quickly, considering all the successes you have found after that. Tell me what it was like. How did you find your passion? Tell me about that now. So how did you end up cooking then? You said that you had never cooked before. What made you go into cookery school and learn the skills? My mom was an English teacher. So she taught me English uh, since I was a, a child. So when I came to, to London, after uh, I have a degree in physics, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's, that's nice or, or, or not right now but um, after I finished my my degree uh, I came to London to have my gap year you know we, we, we have a we, 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 we have a, a different system in Brazil we don't have the gap year before deciding what you're gonna do for the rest of your life you decide what you're gonna do for the rest of your life then you have the gap year so you know so I came to London to have like a kind of a sort of a gap year but my dad called me and said, look, Alberto, because of the exchange rate, the pound was like 7 to 1 to the Brazilian real. He said, look, you need to get yourself a job. So as I was enrolled in, a, in, a, in an English course, but not your traditional English course, in, in one of these classes, basically was the history of art class, I met a guy who owned a pub. And this guy, uh, you know, we got close, and then he said, oh, you're from Brazil. Okay, so you play on my Sunday league team, football. You know, they, they assume every Brazilian plays uh, good football. And um, what happened was that uh, I actually didn't know what to do in my degree. So he just told me, look, uh, I understand that you kind of lost, but when I look at you, I think that if you come to the kitchen, you, you might have a career. And I said, why? I can't chop an onion. And uh, he was like, because the, the, you know, the, the, the abilities, the basic abilities that a chef needs, you do have. You have a, a coordination to like a slice of fish, to, to, to move it within like a small space. You have, a, uh, you have the strength, the stamina, because back then, you know, it was like a, the dark days of the cookery where you used to work 20 hours a day, things like that. And you have uh, leadership skills because our football team was a mess and you start playing with us and, uh, you know, you organized everything. Uh, and also because of your background and also your degree, 
you're gonna be a fast learner. I think that person was definitely right considering what happened after that. So you, you worked with quite a few top chefs here in London, for example. After which you opened your restaurant in Sao Paulo, a piece, and then a bit later you opened Otaki in, in Rio, the yes. restaurant that has two Michelin stars. Yes. How would you describe your cooking philosophy nowadays? Uh, my cooking philosophy is based on something... I mean, the disciplines I focus myself on nowadays are not really based on cooking. Urbanism to architecture to design, you know, uh, th- those are the references I try to bring into my world to tr- make my restaurant better. So I was in Japan, actually, and then I was visiting uh, a Muji shop, and then I bought Kenya Hara's uh, little book that's called White. That's the book where he says when he, uh, he, he he says the story about when he was invited to be uh, Muji's uh, head designer or something like that. I think he's the CEO or something like that right now. And then uh, one of the sentences of the book, he was like uh, lost to to know what to do with Muji, what with what people wanted uh, from him. And then he one day he just had an insight, and then the the sentence read. My mission here was very clear, is to make what's sophisticated simple and what is simple sophisticated. So when I read that, it was like a, the apple falling off the tree in, in my head. So that's my, if I had to define a tech in my cooking philosophy, those would be the words. I presume we have some listeners who may not have been to your restaurants yet. I, w- I wonder if you could maybe tell us more about your cooking style by describing what have been some of your favorite dishes you have created over the years? Oh. What have been the most popular ones? I mean, we, we eat all the time now, Marcos. Not only when you sit for a meal, but with Instagram, you, you're eating the whole day. Uh, you know, you're seeing pictures from restaurants all over the world. And uh, I consider now that if a chef in his lifetime creates three or four dishes that people keep coming back for or people don't forget about it because like I've had a meal the other day at the restaurant, I can remember what I ate. So it's like a, it's like a, you're a successful chef. So there's like a three or four dishes that I think uh, they are like that for me. One is a um, pico sardine with a, a thin slice of raw foie gras with uh, some spices on top and a brioche at the bottom. There's a funny story about that. I'll tell you later. The other one is like a, a raw Brazil nut ice cream. That raw Brazil nut ice cream, people come from all over the world just to eat that ice cream. I had people flying fly from Japan just to eat the ice cream. Of course, they had to have the whole wheel before. But uh, And there's a, a slow roasted onion uh, that stuffed with a fresh sea urchin, some Brazilian farofa, and some mussel cream. And the last one would be a glazed uh, barbecued uh, a prawn with a Brazilian pirão, which would be our version of a bisque, which is made is a it, it's a sauce made with uh, the shells and everything, but it's not thickened with flour because before the Portuguese came in the 1500s, you didn't have wheat in Brazil. It came in the Portuguese, so uh, we actually had manioc. So we thickened it with a very thin variety of raw grinded manioc flour. So it fixes it up, and then uh, and then we just serve with the glazed prawns. So I think this would be like our, my my signature dishes. How are these dishes born? You said you have a story about the first yeah, thing you the, mentioned. Yeah, the sardine. You know, uh, I was like, uh, you know, chefs, especially when they are uh, starting, they're not really paid that well. And I was living in London, having to pay rent, 
and uh, you know, crazy life. You don't even have time. So it's very something that's very traditional here. Is sardines on toast. So what what is that? You open a tin of sardines. You have some butter and bread. So the idea came from there because that's what I ate when I had no money left whatsoever. So I said, I'm gonna say I'm gonna make not a posh version, but I'm gonna make a proper version of that dish. So that sardine, instead of butter, I use foie gras, which is fat, which is basically the same thing. The ideas of the elements like the sardine, but it's a fresh sardine. It's cured, it's lightly brined, so it has acidity to cut through all that fat that the, fo the foie gras and the brioche has. And then, uh, so that sardine it is, is a better version of sardines on toast. It's sardines, fat, butter, uh, or uh, foie gras instead of butter, and instead of you know, just a, a loaf of, of a sliced bread, some nice brioche. Alberto Landgraf there. He'll be opening his restaurant Bossa in London a bit later this year. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Researchers in Taiwan have discovered a distinct new species of clam native to the Tamsui River. The Fisheries Research Institute had thought the clam was a Japanese species, but genetic testing revealed it was native to Taiwan. The Meritrix Taiwanica can be found on the nation's western coast and in coastal areas of southern China. Disputes in southwest France are brewing over wine growers' use of anti-frost towers. The giant fans, which raise the air temperatures and prevent spring frosts, are said to be as noisy as helicopters and are disrupting villagers, particularly at night time. Although the fans are necessary to protect the vines, people living nearby say the towers should be banned or at least made quieter. Some English fish and chip shops could begin serving locally caught small sharks in a bid to tackle food inflation. The Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs said that UK fishermen would be able to catch the North East Atlantic Spur Dog as well as more expensive varieties. This would mean the reintroduction of so-called rock salmon, which was served in some restaurants in southern England until a ban on catching it came into effect in 2010. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. One of Malaysia's best-known international chefs is Christian Ricomio. He grew up in Aberdeen and worked as a chef around the world before settling in Kuala Lumpur. That is where he runs the casual bistro Alta Cafe and a fine dining restaurant studio, which serves natural wines, craft cocktails and a tasting menu inspired by Christian's global culinary influences. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant talked to Christian to learn more. I come from a family of food. My mother was a catering director, an executive chef. And my father, who's Californian with a Mexican heritage, was in the kitchen every weekend cooking for the family. So that's how I was always in amongst food, even from a really early age. I bought my first restaurant in 2004, which was a Moonfish Cafe. Bought it off a friend. But previous to that, I had a little sandwich shop and deli that I built up over three years. So this was back in the day where, you know, putting things like hummus and pesto on a sandwich was gold. So in 2007, I spent a summer working in Barcelona with a chef called Paco Guzman. 
He'd previously worked at a very famous restaurant called El Bulli in Spain with uh, Ferran Adria. And uh, I was completely obsessed with Spanish food at the time. I then went on to get back to Aberdeen and I worked with a local businessman and we opened a second restaurant in Aberdeen called Fusion. It's a lot more refined, it was a tasting menu, but it was very, very busy and time consuming. Then in 2012, I moved to a small island in Norway called Schumu and worked at a hotel called Engelgard. Here we learned a lot about new Nordic cuisine, which was booming at the time. And we were working with their suppliers closely. We were working with uh, produce from their small farm. We learned to work sustainably with some nice products. And then I spent a small amount of time at Noma in Copenhagen. And then in late 2012, I came to visit my sisters in Kuala Lumpur and liked it so much that I decided to stay. So after about a year in KL of traveling and eating my way through Southeast Asia, which would have been a lot in Bali, a lot of time in Bangkok, Jakarta, I met my partner, Jennifer, and we opened an eating house and wine bar. And then in 2016, we opened Sitka Studio. And in 2017, we opened Alta Cafe. And that's that. So you just opened Studio in September in KL after a really big revamp. What's new about this particular restaurant? Well, for both Jennifer and myself, we, we never felt completely settled in our old studio location. We had constant issues with landlords. We were always given a very short lease. The area was going to be put up for redevelopment. I think there was going to be high rises built there or condos. So to put down some proper roots in, in KL, it was, it was always quite a, a nerve wracking time. For, for all those reasons, and obviously the effects of uh, COVID-19 ultimately led us to find a new location. So it's been a, a massive, massive project for us. Ultimately a complete revamp and rebuild of the, the previous two restaurants. And it was a non-commercial property. So building from the ground up in a space that previously wasn't a restaurant is, is fairly hard work. The benefits are that studio and the ground floor have been completely reimagined. On the food side of things, we're more focused on the quality of ingredients, which previously we weren't. A lot of the food we serve at studio is very simple and true to its form. I think as you get older, you only want to cook things that are 100% delicious. So we do our best to steer away from overcomplicated dishes with no more than four components. And we've done away with the unnecessary garnish. The menu is very much a reflection of the way I like to cook in all the restaurants. But at Studio, we can shine a light on some of my favorite ingredients from Scotland, Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And what are some of the dishes at Studio that you're most proud of? Our bread service is something special that a lot of guests comment on. We serve a house-made creme fraiche roll, cultured butter, with the accompanying dish of crispy baby potatoes, jus gras, which is like a super fatty chicken gravy, rosemary mascarpone, and it's all the flavors of a Sunday roast in a single serving, not for the faint-hearted. I know that you also have some more Scottish-inspired dishes that Malaysians might be pretty unfamiliar with. Could you tell me about those? Recently, we've put on as, a, as an extra snack, we call it a tatty scone. So a tatty scone, tatty is the word that we use for potatoes. So it's really simple. It's um, butter, mashed potatoes, and some flour. And we roll it out, 
pan fry it in brown butter. And we use that as a vessel for a lot of small snacks. Currently, we have some pickled chanterelles, and we serve it with a cheese sauce. Other items are our petty fours. We serve a tablet, which is basically a Scottish candy. It's quite crystallized. It's basically toffee. Other dishes would be we do a malt loaf with a local cheese here served with honey. So there is influences from Scotland in the, in the current menu. So you still run Moonfish in Aberdeen and at the same time you have all these restaurants in Kuala Lumpur. How would you compare the dining scenes in Aberdeen and Malaysia? Ah, completely different. Completely different. I used to think if we build it, they will come. But this maybe applies to more cosmopolitan cities and capitals. In Scotland, we're very, very lucky because most of our customers are regular and there's a sense of loyalty and they trust the restaurant because we've been going for so long, almost 20 years. Uh, KL's still very new. The competition's fierce. And to be honest, it's a little bit like the Wild West right now. The diners are impressionable and curious and the scene is vibrant, but it's still very, very young. Definitely room to grow. So apart from studio, tell me about your other restaurants. So I have Moonfish in Aberdeen, which is a a port city. It's a Michelin-recommended restaurant. It's run by myself and the very talented chef, Brian McLeish. We focus on the brilliant seafood of the North Sea, bespoke gins and natural wine. Here in KL, we have Alta Cafe, which is basically a brunch spot consisting of food that I'd like to eat and I like to cook. The food is very simple. It's a great price point, super casual. We open seven days a week for brunch and three nights a week, Thursday to Saturday as a wine bar. And we serve some snacks and some European stuff, some classics and some new dishes, but never, never complicated. What's it like to run both a higher and more fine dining restaurant and a more casual brunch spot? It keeps us completely occupied. I mean, fine dining can be quite tedious sometimes. So to to go back into, say, Alta Cafe and just make some omelettes or scrambled eggs on toast is is quite refreshing and keeps us very fresh. Christian Ricomio there speaking to Monocle's Naomi Shoe Elegant. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Marcus Hippie. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Wolfram with Fireworks. Thanks for listening and until next week.